Okay, so as you may or may not know, uh, this is uh, the second week in a little four-part series we are currently doing on sex. Welcome to Gloucester Vineyard Church, everybody. Um, last week, Emily opened our series by talking about the reality of shame in our lives and the power that it has to completely wreak havoc in our lives. Um, and Emily talked about how God's desire is to move towards us in our brokenness and in our shame, and that he doesn't wait until we've got our act together before he comes towards us with love and forgiveness, and how it's a, actually a real tragedy that historically the church has stood to perpetuate shame uh, rather than be a source of freedom uh, from shame. Um, and last week, who, who listened to last week or was here last week? Anybody listen and catch up on the podcast? Yeah. Um, last week was pretty heavy, right? It was a heavy week, a good week. If you missed it, please catch up on the podcast because some of the stuff that Emily said I'm going to be talking about today and then in the next few talks, we're kind of, there's like a logical flow that runs throughout. So please do take the time to make sure you listen to all of those. Um, but this week um, will be less heavy. Whew. Important, but less heavy. We're going to be a little bit more objective today. Today I'm going to be picking up the baton from Emily and I'm going to be talking about culture, the culture around us and the what is going on in the wider world around us. Um, but before I go any further, I just want to name a couple of things. Firstly, we're really aware that talking about sex in church brings some of us out in hives and that for some of us, church has not been a safe place to talk about sex in the past. Um, I'm really aware that each of us is coming here today from a completely different place when it comes to sex and that we have a wide range of experiences and opinions and theologies here. Um, I'm also aware that for many of us, this subject is an absolute minefield, it's just a minefield, and that me mentioning sex already may have made you feel really anxious. I just want to say that with all that in mind, I see you. Hello. Um, Emily and I have tried really hard to write these four talks with you guys in our minds. Um, we've tried to be really careful and selective about the language that we use and the messages that we bring. Um, and we've really prepared what we feel God would have us share to this community at this time on the subject of sex and sexuality. Um, but we're also very much still on the learning journey ourselves. You know, we've tried to approach this topic with careful consideration, uh, with humility, and with compassion. Um, um, and, but what we're saying here is by no means all that we could say. Uh, we probably should and maybe could say more, um, but we've just very carefully considered what God would say to this community at this time. So we would simply ask that you trust us in that um, as we kind of bring stuff over the next couple of weeks. So that's that. Um, the other thing to say is that unlike our usual format where there's lots of backwards and forwards and I ask you questions and you shout answers at me and sometimes I tell you to go and talk to the people next to you, you'll be relieved to hear we will not be doing that today. So you, no one's going to ask you to share anything with the person next to you. Um, and the other thing to say is whereas normally the children would come back in and join us at the end, um, as I said earlier on, we will be going over to join the children. That's really just to give us an environment at the end where we can take our time, have a little bit of response and kind of just that's just going to be for the month of October but we just felt like that would be a sensible thing to do rather than us get to like a really deep moment and then the children come back so we've decided to kind of just let's just make some space for that so there we go okay very good let's crack on now who knows who this guy is yeah does anybody know who this guy is okay I'm going to ask you because you're not American who's that Kool-Aid man it's the Kool-Aid man there he is what the heck is Kool-Aid? I need a tame American. Can you be a tame American? Yeah. So for those of us who are not, oh, he doesn't look very tame. What is, what is Kool-Aid? Kool-Aid is the American version of 
Squash. Okay, am I right in thinking it comes in powder form? Yes, it is, uh, powder form. And you don't snort it, you actually uh, put it in a jug. <laughs> then you add, add sugar to taste, usually more for myself. Yeah, because it's, it's just the flavor, it's just the chemicals to make the kids wired first, and the colorings that are key, and then you pour in sugar, lots of sugar, usually more or less, and then you add water, more or less to taste, and it comes in a variety of rainbow colors. So drink the Kool-Aid, I'm telling you, it's good stuff. Okay. Is it like Tang? Uh, tang is healthy. <laughs> um, is, is, is Kool-Aid any good? Is it nice? Um, it makes wonderful ice lollies. Okay. Perfect for ice lollies, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, very good, thank you. Can we applaud our tame American? That was very good. Um, so has anybody here ever tried Kool-Aid? Anybody ever drunk the Kool-Aid? Yes. Now, do you know that expression, to drink the Kool-Aid? Yeah, have you heard that expression? I said I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do this. What does that mean? Can you tell us what that means? Uh, as a true crime fact, uh, Manson, Charles Manson told okay. him. Okay, rewind, rewind a little bit. So, what does it, so if I say don't drink the Kool-Aid, what does that mean? It means in like, don't give in to everyone else, what everyone else is doing, however crazy it is, don't drink Kool-Aid. So, so there's a story going on, there's a, there's a kind of a vision, there's something that's, being, that's trying to be delivered to you, don't do it. And sh do you want to do the story behind it or shall I? Can you, do it? Can you do it in 30 seconds? No, okay, so the, the story goes that it was this, it was this cult, um, sorry, it was over in the States, it was this cult and, um, and hey? They went to South America, and um, long story short, there was, a, there was this suicide pact when they put the cyanide in the Kool-Aid, and they knew that the cyanide was in the Kool-Aid, and they drank the Kool-Aid anyway. It was a horrible, horrible tragedy. But out of it came this expression, don't drink the Kool-Aid. And the, the idea behind that is to say, there's a kind of, there's a narrative, there's a vision, there's a thing going on, there's a, there's a kind of force going on, and if you drink the Kool-Aid, you will die. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Well, wow, that was a lot more serious than I thought it would be. <laughs> that landed really hard. Um, so to drink the Kool-Aid is to be all in. Um, and the message today, my message today is, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. We're going to be attempting to look objectively at our Western culture, and we're going to be asking questions about the Kool-Aid that we are being offered to drink. Uh, we're going to ask the question, how are we being formed and influenced by the culture that we live in? Uh, and as an application, how are we formed and influenced by what our Western culture has to say about sex and sexuality? In other words, what is the cultural Kool-Aid that we're being asked to drink? Now, earlier in the summer, as a family, we spent some time in the Forest of Dean. It's a wonderful place to be. And we were down on the River Wye, and we were trying to walk across the river. And the river was only about uh, knee-deep, but it was flowing really, really fast towards us, and I was holding my daughter's hand, and we were kind of stumbling across this river, and it took us absolutely ages, because the river, even though it was only knee-deep, was flowing past us at such a pace that we could only kind of move like this, and we were wobbling and standing on shards of glass, because that's what the Y's like, and it made me think about that's what it's like when we come up against culture, that it's like standing in a fast-flowing stream, and it's all coming towards you, and honestly, the temptation in that moment, and we did consider it, was we can continue to walk that way, which is against the flow, or we can just, we can abandon ourselves to this. We could like lie back and it could just take us and we'd be off. It's so easy to do that. So easy to just go with that fast flow. But what if that water is flowing off a cliff? What if that water is flowing off a cliff? 
wouldn't it be at least wise and prudent to just question the direction of the water and ask, do I really want to go that way? So that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be thinking about cultural narratives like that fast-flowing river and asking, do I want to go along with culture or do I want to stand against that flow? The aim today is to identify that culture, conform us, and to encourage each of us to identify and scrutinize that formation and ask, am I happy with that? Am I happy with the ways that culture is forming me? So, let's dive in. Let's talk about Kool-Aid again. Uh, can anybody tell me the first incidents of Kool-Aid in the Bible? Where do we first see Kool-Aid in the Bible? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Yes, well done. You get 20 points. It's all, the answer's always Genesis here, isn't it? Let's face it. Yeah, I'd like to argue that we come across the first incidents of Kool-Aid in the first story of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden with our good friends, Adam and Eve. Now, I know it's a familiar story to many of us, whether we were raised with some kind of faith or whether we watched it on The Simpsons, but as a follower of Jesus, the story of the Garden of Eden is hugely significant because we find every thread and theme present in the Bible. It starts in the Garden of Eden. That's why we as a church talk about it all the time and why John's right. If you're ever in doubt, just say the word Genesis and you're probably right. Um, and so last week, Emily talked about the creation of man and woman as allies and the fact that, that we are created to stand before each other naked and vulnerable and feel no shame. And so Adam and Eve are in the garden. They've been given instructions to go and spread the wonderful order and beauty of the garden all over the earth to fill the earth. And Adam and Eve are given one clear instruction. Let's read it. It should come up on the screen behind me. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, Except the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. So, as many of you may know, uh, the story goes on, and the man and the woman are deceived by a talking snake, kind of mysterious. They eat the fruit, and everything unravels from there. Another risk here is that we kind of dismiss this story as irrelevant, that we kind of think of it as a fairy tale from thousands of years ago um, and kind of just dismiss it as uh, mysterious and irrelevant. Um, but I think that, in fact, far from being weird and irrelevant years from uh, fairy tale from thousands of years ago, I've come to really appreciate this story as an extremely deep and profound meditation on the nature of humanity, the nature of God, and a source of real deep hope. And surprisingly, it's actually the magic fruit that I want to focus on today, that I want to talk about today. Because if I was going to be retranslating this for a modern audience, I would say something like, and the Lord God said to the man, you may eat from all of the trees in the garden, but do not drink the Kool-Aid. For on the day you drink of it, you will surely die. Now, I... I'm sure that seems a little bit crass and clumsy to some of you guys, and you're probably very grateful that I'm not in the business of translating Bibles. But I do genuinely think that that's what's going on here. You know, they refer to this moment, um, uh, I really do believe that God is saying, do not drink the Kool-Aid. 
At this moment at the tree is a moment of decision between the wisdom that God lays before the couple and an alternate path. And our friends from the Bible Project have been really helpful in giving us language to actually express what's going on here. They refer to this moment at the tree as uh, mankind's decision to define for themselves what is good and what is bad. That's what that little phrase, the knowledge of good and evil, is all about. It's mankind's decision to define for themselves what is good and what is bad. This moment at the tree is, is almost not really about fruit. In fact, the fruit probably isn't magic at all, uh, but rather it's meant to be a test for humanity. God has given them this job description. He's asked them to go and spread the beauty and order of creation all over the world. And the question becomes, if that's what they're asked to do, how are they going to do it? How are they going to fulfill that job description? Are they going to do it by submitting to God's definition of good and bad? Or are they going to acknowledge that, are they going to acknowledge that he knows best? Or are they going to define good and bad for themselves and run the world according to their own definition? And we should notice at this stage that this alternate path, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not like it's their idea. It comes from the snake. It comes from a voice in their ear telling them a different story, drawing them away from God's instruction and setting up a counter-narrative. And the moment in the garden with the fruit is this moment where humanity considers God's loving wisdom and his love and his instruction and decides that they actually want to listen to the snake instead and go their own way. But importantly... Really, really importantly, as we read our Bibles, as we reflect on them, as we meditate on the other stories, we see that this moment at the tree is not just human history. It's not just talking about one moment right at the very beginning. It's talking about human present. That every single character in the story from that moment on seems to have a similar moment in their story, much like this, where they are presented with a decision. Are they going to live life their way? Uh, Sorry. Are they going to live their life according to God's love and wisdom, or are they going to go their own way to define good and bad for themselves? And pretty much every single character uh, in our Bibles is presented with this choice, with this test. And for these characters, this drawing away from God's wisdom, it's never delivered by anything as obvious as a snake. No one ever gets a snake again really easy to spot if a snake kind of came up and they were like, I remember you, you're that talking snake. I'm not listening to you. No, for each of these guys, it's delivered to them through the prevailing culture that they're living in. It comes in the form of a crowd of people walking in a different direction. It comes to them in the form of cultural Kool-Aid. It's a flow of people saying, we're all going that way. And God is saying, stand up. And they're saying, no, we're all going this way. And we see again and again the awful results when humanity chooses to drink the Kool-Aid, to go with the flow. We start to see what God means when he says, if you drink this Kool-Aid, you will surely die. The death that God is talking about there doesn't come there and then in the form of physical death, but it comes afterwards in the death that we see in the world. But further to this, our Bibles would have us own and recognize this story of Adam and Eve in our own daily lives too. That each day, each one of us stands at that tree with God's good and wise and loving instruction in our ears. We have to decide, are we going to live according to what God is telling us or are we going to define good and bad for ourselves? To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus is to be a person who is daily learning to stand at the tree and make the choice to submit to God's wisdom whether we like it or not whether we think it's convenient or not, whether we think it makes sense or not. 
And equally for us, that moment of the tree, that voice that comes to us and tries to convince us to listen to culture, to go with the flow. Um, where did I get to? I was right there. Um, pause. That voice that comes to us and tries us to convince us to go with the flow of the river, the voice is trying to pull us away from God's wisdom and God's love. And for each of us, the responsibility is to recognize the culture that we live in, the narratives that surround us, to identify the water flowing against us and ask, do I want to be part of that? Or am I going to stand against it? This is the reality of being a follower of Jesus in any culture, not just ours. This is the reality for us today living in Western culture. And there are so many cultural narratives that we could put our finger on, that we could shine the spotlight on at this point. We could talk about the cultural narrative that everyone should just look after themselves, look out for number one to the exclusion of everybody else. Or maybe we could talk about the cultural narrative that I cannot love you, I cannot talk to you if I disagree with you, and I have to cancel you. Or maybe we could talk about the cultural narrative that people are defined by the money that they earn or the car that they have, like it's a value statement on people, just how much money they have. You know, I could go on. We are surrounded by cultural narratives all the time. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves living in a cultural narrative that we don't agree with, that we don't believe in, and that we don't endorse, simply because we've just gone with the flow. And that's what I think is going on when it comes to the cultural narratives we live amongst when it comes to sex. I think that many of us have unknowingly drunk the Kool-Aid and are living in a story that is harmful to us and harmful to those around us. And so today, I just want to spend some time shining a light on that and getting us to just ask those questions. What cultural narratives am I allowing to influence the way I think about my sexuality? And am I happy with that? What cultural narratives am I allowing to form the person that I am and the person that I'm becoming? And am I happy with that? Have I drunk the Kool-Aid? That's what we're going to be doing today. We're halfway through. Everybody stand up, give the person next to you a high five, and go, good grief, that was heavy. I wish Daniel would do one of those things where it kind of breaks the tension a little bit. It's okay, everybody. Normal service will resume in November. This is fun, right? This is all good, right? Um, so we're going to be talking about culture. Are there any monks or nuns in the room? I see no hands. Okay, so by, by dint of no hands, I know that all of us are living at some to, to some degree in culture. We're all in the real world. We're all in the workplace. You know, we all watch Netflix. We all go down the pub. We all go to the playground. Like, we, we live our lives amongst culture. We're meant to. We're meant to live in culture. That's exactly what Jesus did. But we need to wake up to the fact that living in any culture will form us. Um, it will form us to fit in with the culture. And part of following Jesus is learning to identify and scrutinize that cultural formation. It's to ask the question of whatever culture that we live in, is this influencing me to be more like Jesus or less like Jesus? Is this narrative in line with God's wisdom or is it against it? Does that narrative promote kingdom values of love and equality and dignity and respect or does it destroy them? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus in any culture, to ask those questions of the flow of culture that we're standing in. And let's not be overly simplistic here. It would be really stupid and disingenuous for me to claim that every cultural narrative is bad and harmful. Come on, let's not do that. Equally, as we heard last week, we cannot simply say that the church holds the key to spreading, uh, to speaking something 
like to speaking to something like culture on sexuality because clearly we've made a lot of mistakes within living memory on that front. We're not saying culture bad, church good, but what we do want to do is highlight that all cultural narratives should be identified and scrutinized. All narratives need to be subjected to that question. Do I want that narrative to influence who I am and who I'm becoming? Now, who has ever heard of the sexual revolution? Yeah? Handful of you. Yeah, thought so. Basically, back in the 60s, um, there was this thing which we now think of as the sexual revolution, where everything came onto the table for exploration, and sexual freedom was enthroned as the highest sexual ethic. Um, and in the, in the midst of that kind of... Uh, moment, the church responded with fear. The church clamped down and started enforcing and promoting behavioral codes based on sexual purity, um, and either on purpose or by accident kind of created environments where shame could really thrive and grow. So the church's response to sex and kind of sexual exploration has been fear-based, that our sexuality is perhaps to be feared. But culture, on the other hand, has largely held the ethos that rather than being feared, our sexuality is to be followed. The dominant sexual ethic is that, we, that we see is that freedom of expression and freedom of exploration is the most important thing. That each of us are sexual beings, that we all have desires, and that the path to happiness is found in listening to and following our sexual desires wherever they might lead. And within this framework, the greatest evil is the idea that for any reason we would hold our sexual desires in check or be deprived of complete freedom. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, there's some very, very shy nods. Good. Excellent. That's landed with one of you. Now, this all sounds fairly good to us, I'm sure. I'm sure that none of us are surprised by that. Like, that is the kind of dominant, um, that is the flow of the river that is coming towards us. However, it didn't take long for us to look around after the sexual revolution um, to see the legacy of the sexual revolution. Like, rather than leading to this utopian society um, where just sex increasingly became about, um, like, everyone was kind of, everyone could do what they want and everyone was getting what they wanted and it was all happy and good. Um, rather, um, sex increasingly came about selfishness and greed. It became less about what I would like and what I would prefer and more about what I want and what I need. It became less about you and your needs. It became more about me and my needs. The values and conclusions about sex that we're kind of forced to hold as a consequence is this kind of every person for themselves world where everyone is simply seeking their own sexual gratification regardless of the consequence or the impact that it might have on others. Uh, I know that sounds extreme, but let me show you what I mean. Has anybody seen uh, this film here? Crazy Stupid Love. Anybody seen it? Yeah, a handful of you guys have seen it, yeah. Um, this film is a fantastic example of the mess we get into when we listen to culture and go kind of blindly along with an every person for themselves sex ethic. Um, does anyone like this film? Be brave. Yeah, I'm really sorry. You really shouldn't. It is absolutely appalling. Um, <laughs> So we watched this film over summer. Embo and I are fond of a trashy chick flick. And we watched it. And, it, and trashy it is. But I'm sorry. I just couldn't get past some of the stuff that happens in this film. So in, I would rename this Crazy Stupid Sex Ethics, because really it is. So in this film, Steve Carell, um, he, he's a guy who's in a 
marriage that goes stale and eventually ends. And in response, he gets some coaching about how to pick up women in bars and basically just gets really, really good at picking up women for one-night stands. And we see, like, scene after scene where Carell basically treats the women around him like objects for his own personal gratification and nothing more. Um, and the women in the film, they're no better. They're just the same. You know, they see all their fellow humans as just bits of meat to be used and discarded. Um, but so I was fairly offended by that. But it actually gets worse. There's this storyline about Carell's son who is in love with this older girl. And this girl really clearly asks the boy to leave her alone. His advances are making her feel uncomfortable. That She's not interested in him and never will be. And this boy is advised by his parents to pursue her no matter what. That if it's love, don't take no for an answer. Which this boy does. He basically completely tramples on this girl's dignity and her agency. You know, this film ends in a way which, frankly, I, I cannot bring myself to articulate into this microphone because it is in just such poor taste. But I honestly encourage you to go and watch this film. And I really hope that you regret it. Because <laughs> if you watch this film with your antennae up, it's horribly disturbing. It really is disturbing. Um, now, I know that it's really... It's really cheap and obvious to pick on a movie and just tear it apart. It's, it's really cheap. But this film is um, full of really questionable sexual ethics. And it's fed by every person for themselves cultural narrative. It's a narrative that says your own sexual gratification is the most important thing. You cannot be happy without it. Obtain it at all costs. You must not deprive yourself of what you want and need. You must take it from your fellow human beings. Can we be surprised that we have a problem with sexual harassment and sexual assault at the moment? If that's the cultural narrative that we're living in. Can we be surprised that we have such an endemic problem with stalking in our society when that's a celebrated cultural narrative? You know, can we be at all surprised that the Me Too movement gains so much momentum so quickly when this is the Kool-Aid that we've been drinking? I went on Rotten Tomatoes because Emily said, you can't use that film as an example because it's 13 years old, so therefore it's ancient. And I thought, I'm going to go on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a website where normal people can review films. I thought, it's okay. I'm going to come across loads of really woke reviews of people calling this film out as being like shoddy and horrible and misogynistic. I found none. Everyone was like, this film is amazing. So I might be doing that this evening going on there. If you find an angry review on Rotten Tomatoes... <laughs> That'll be a keyboard warrior this evening. That'll be me. But honestly, I, this is not about the media that we consume. Like, that's part of this topic, but it's such a small part of it. You know, the media that gets produced is merely a product of the culture that it's produced from. The problem is the cultural Kool-Aid that we're all drinking about what sex is, the value of sex, and what we do with our sexual desires. The problem is that our society has been drinking the cultural Kool-Aid from the sexual revolution since the 60s. And as I look around, as I said, I do not see that utopian world that the sexual revolution promised us. Like, I see a world that's decimated by broken relationships, by sexual abuse, by shame, by identity crises, by the objectification and the commodification of human beings made in God's image. You know, I see the modern-day slave trade, which is driven by sex trafficking. All of these things are the products of, of generations drinking that Kool-Aid of the every person for themselves. 
That's the way forward. And I believe that into this fast-flowing river that we're standing in, God would speak to us just as he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. I believe he would say to us loud and clear, don't drink the Kool-Aid, for on the day you drink it, you will surely die. Don't go with the flow of the river. Can't you see? Look around you. It's running off a cliff. And I'm sure that each of us, if we take a moment to reflect this week, we'll be able to identify loads of ways that we've drunk the cultural Kool-Aid when it comes to sex. Whether it's our attitude towards pornography or our expectations of sex within our marriage or whether it's the selfish and greedy practices that we've induced into our, introduced into our sexual lives or maybe we think about and commodify people we're attracted to. Like we're all standing in this river This is not a moment for judgment. This is not a moment for finger-pointing or calling out specific behaviors. This is a moment for each of us to just stand up in that river, to stand against the flow of culture and ask ourselves some really honest questions. To see if we can see evidence of selfishness and greed in our own sexuality. To see if we can see ways that we've gone along with culture. To identify the narratives about sex that we've listened to, to the Kool-Aid that we've drunk, and to own that. You know, maybe it's the narrative that sex is nothing but an animal appetite that needs to be fulfilled. Or maybe it's the narrative that sex is purely a physical experience which has no emotional or spiritual power. You know, maybe it's the narrative that the only way two humans can achieve intimacy is through sex. Or the narrative that you simply cannot be happy and fulfilled as a human without having sex. Or maybe it's the narrative that marriage is where sex goes to die. Or the narrative that I need to take what I want because no one ever will ever give it to me. Or the narrative that anything other than complete freedom in our sexuality is harmful. You know, for the first couple of hundred years of the church, um, the church stood out like a sore thumb. They were a radical community who knew how to do this, to ask the big questions of the culture around them. They were known for the ways that they stood up and walked against the flow. Um, and probably the most striking example was the way um, was their sexual ethics and their sexual lives, the way they were living um, radically against the flow of culture, and everyone noticed. Now, this bit's just for the Jesus followers in the room, so if you're not following Jesus, it's okay, you're off the hook for this bit. But when people look at our lives, whether we're dating, whether we're married, whether we're single or engaged, divorced, frustrated, wherever we're at, when people look at our lives, do they see any difference to the cultural flow around us? Can anyone see any evidence that we might be living a different story? Or have we drunk the Kool-Aid on this one? Look, I'm not saying that I've got this thing all sewn up. I'm not going to pretend that I'm sorted on this front. I'm speaking today out of my personal experience and my brokenness on this issue. The point here is not to point fingers or beat ourselves up. The point is to take a moment to stand up in the river and look around us and make a conscious choice about what we're going to do next. To take charge of our sexuality, to not allow ourselves to be simply swept up by what everyone else is thinking and doing. To decide for ourselves the direction of our lives and our sexualities. You know, last week Emily did a really brilliant job about talking about the Bible's antidote for shame, that that antidote is forgiveness, and how forgiveness is the removal of anything which is compromising our humanity, um, and, grant, and it's the granting of dignity. And I want to end today by just kind of placing in another really Christian word, which is repentance. 
Repentance is the act of simply turning around and walking in another, in another direction. And for us today, repentance is the act of just simply standing up in that cultural flow. To identify the ways that we've either been dragged along, we've chosen to go along, we've accidentally go along, or frankly, really enjoyed going along with the flow of the river. It's a moment to say, maybe I don't want to go with the flow anymore. I want to, at the very least, stand up to the flow of culture around me, maybe even to just take some steps against it. Now, I'm aware that not all of us are in that place, and that's okay. You know, for some of us, the next step is to go away and have several thoughtful cups of tea in a really good, honest conversation with a friend or a partner. Um, other, others of us might need to have some painful and difficult conversations and make some changes um, if we're going to live this out authentically. We might need to be courageous, make some hard decisions. We might need to have some awkward conversations. And just to say, married people in the room, like, you're not off the hook on this one. I'm speaking to myself here. Like, have we decided, if we've decided to be married, um, we're just as susceptible as being swept up in culture as those of us who are not married. You know, what cultural narratives have we allowed into our marriage? Because our marriages are supposed to be pictures of the kingdom. Today is an invitation into repentance, an invitation to stop going along with the flow of culture when it comes to sex, to reject the narrative of selfishness and greed, which is sowing so much pain into the world, and choose a better path. You know, we've taken the last two weeks and the last two talks to break some things down. You know, we've talked about the church's fear-based response to sexuality and the shame that follows in its wake. And we talked about culture's narrative of every person for themselves and the pain and selfishness that that's created as a consequence. And we're going to be taking the next two weeks to build something. We're going to be taking the next two weeks to um, paint what we believe God would say to us living in this fast flow of Western culture when it comes to sex. We want to take the next two weeks to cast vision for what we believe is a way to stand up to culture and walk a better path to stand at the tree and ignore the snake, to rely on the wisdom and love of God. We'd love to invite all of you guys to come and engage with that, if you'd like to. Um, but today, um, I just want to lead us, as I close in a moment of quiet meditation, um, to kind of just see what the Holy Spirit would say to us in this moment. Ember, would you be able to come back up again? Thank you. So I think we're going to do a couple of things now. Um, in a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to go and take some bread, and we're going to dip it in the grape juice to kind of uh, represent Jesus' body and his blood, which was broken for us um, and given for us uh, as a way of identifying with that sacrifice. Uh, but before we do, we're just going to, we're just going to have a, a moment of quiet meditation. Um, and so I'm going to invite all of us to close our eyes, and you don't have to do this. You can snooze if you like. Um, but I just want to encourage you to close your eyes. Just let people in the room around you do their own thing. Let's just take a moment to just picture ourselves standing in that river. The water's coming up to our knees. Just imagine yourself with the force of that river against your, sh your shins and your lower legs pushing you.
Take a moment to just kind of look around you in your imagination to the, the river on both sides, the river in front of you and the river behind you. That river represents everything that our culture would say to us is good and bad about life and thriving. And we stand today in that flow. We have the ability to stand and observe it. And each of us, in our own separate ways, have gone along with that flow over the years. It's natural and normal. It happens to us all. But each of us also always has the power to stand up and ask whether we want to continue on that path or whether we want to strike in a different direction. So I think in this moment, the Holy Spirit is just highlighting in some people's hearts and minds what some stuff. And kind of building on the foundation that Emily laid last week, this is not a moment for shame. This is not a moment for owning that stuff as a part of our identity. This is a moment of strength. This is a moment of identifying what's going on around us, what's going on inside of us, and deciding where we're going to go next. Father, we know that you see us as we stand in this river of culture. Lord, we know that you, you know this river better than we do. We know that, well, you know this struggle better than we do. We know that you have a vision for life in all of its fullness, for a, uh, a fullness of life. And Father, we just want to acknowledge some ways that we've gone with the flow on this one whether we did it deliberately or by accident, whether we had a choice in the matter or not. We just want to just, to just notice those things. And Father, for each of us, we want this to be a moment of, of repentance from some of that stuff, to turn around and walk in a different direction. To say, yeah, fair play. I've gone a fair way down the river on this one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn around and walk the other direction. Father, we just ask that you would meet us in that moment. We know that we don't stand there alone. We know that we, it's not walking against that flow in our own strength, that it's not by striving that we get there. But Father, we know that you're standing right beside us, that you're ready to take us by the hand, that you're ready to hold us firm and walk us forward. So Father, we just choose to take your hand in this moment. Would you give us your strength? Would you help us to stand? Would you help us to not just stand up to the flow of culture around us, but to move against it? 
Lord, where this flow has led us and those around us into injustice. Father, we stand against it. We pray that you would make us into beacons of light and hope that show that it can be done, that there is another way, a way that is infused with your love and your wisdom.